Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Paul says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably, peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, Paul's nearing the end of his letter to the church there in Rome. And like he did in many of his letters, and I'm going to show you that in just a second. He's piling up a lot of encouragement and instruction into one big lump. Have you notice how that's a lot of different topics all just thrown in at one time? Well, what I want to do real quickly is show you this isn't the only time he does this. And he does this for a reason. And I want you to also be paying attention as I take you to a couple other letters that he wrote and show you how he did the same thing. Be listening for a common set of themes. All right. So don't just say, well, it's just Jim will read it to us. Be listening for a common set of themes. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. In 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 12, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil." Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verses 25 through 32. You're hopefully starting to notice that in most of his letters, this piling a bunch of instruction slash encouragement into one big lump is a common theme. Ephesians 4, look at verses 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Go over to Colossians, a couple of books to the right. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Did anybody notice any common themes? Throw some out at me. What were some common themes you saw in each of those? Peace. Forgiving each other. Thankfulness. Sorry? Love. Exactly. By the way, as I hope you're going to begin to see tonight and in a couple of weeks when we meet back again after our Bible cruise, what I want you to see is, is Paul has written in most of his letters, near the end of each of the letters, he just compiles a bunch of instruction. Now, again, this is not just Paul. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul and writing to us. There's definitely a common theme, which we're going to be taking a look at some of those tonight. But the fact that there's a common theme to each of these, in each of these letters must show us that there are some very important things that the church needs to understand. And if we're open and honest about it, some of these things we're going to look at tonight and when we come back together in, in a couple of weeks, because we won't get through all of this section tonight. Some of the things we've see, we see Paul writing are really, really needed in the church today, are they not? The whole idea of being at peace with one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, thankfulness. Actually, I wrote down a few of these themes that I started to see. Loving each other, forgiving each other, avoiding evil. We're going to spend some time on that one tonight. Pursuing what is good, being patient, and suffering. So what we're going to do is we're going to begin to break some of these instructions from Paul's letter to the Romans down, since it's obvious these are important enough to write to the churches when we meet together in a couple of weeks, I'm going to actually continue to go verse by verse through this section of chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. And we're going to look at each one very specifically and how it correlates with the rest of Scripture. Tonight, though, we're only going to get as far as verses 9 and 10. And you're hopefully going to see in just a little bit why. But before we go and look at verses 9 and 10 tonight and break them down, I also felt like God started to show me that these, let, these, these words of Paul in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, aren't just similar to what he did when he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, or Colossae, or Philippi, or sorry, the, the letter to the, the Ephesians. Listen to me. It's also, it hit me, these are almost word for word what Jesus said right before he left the earth. Go back with me to John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Verses 12 through 17, and then verses 33 through 35. John chapter, chapter 13, verses 12 through 17. And when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so, am I, so I am. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jump down to verse 32. I'm sorry, verse 33. Verse 33, Jesus said, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Jump over to chapter 15, look at verses 12 through 17. In chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Chapter 16, go to chapter 16 and look at verses 32 and 33. In chapter 16, verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you'll be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Again, listen to the common set of themes. That we're to be loving each other, forgiving each other, avoiding evil, pursuing what is good, and patient is in suffering. And Jesus, if you were to summarize what he said in the last hours that he had with his disciples before he went to the cross, it was very similar as well. By the way, you say, Jim, where did he talk about forgiving one another? Actually, that's what he was doing when he was showing them the washing of the feet. See, a lot of times people have had that passage in John 13 where Jesus washes their feet. They've taught it that that was service and that we're to serve one another. And the Bible does say to serve one another. But if you think about it a little bit more deeply, you'll realize Jesus wasn't teaching about service. If he was teaching about service, Peter would have known what he was doing. Remember how when he went to wash Peter's feet? And Peter said, I'm not going to let you wash my feet because Peter thought that Jesus was going to be serving him. And Jesus said something very interesting. He said, you don't know what I'm doing right now. Later you will. In other words, G Peter, you think this is about service. This isn't about service. You think you know what I'm doing, but you don't. Later you'll understand what I'm doing here. And if you don't let me wash you, you have no part in me. And Peter said, then give me a whole bath then. I'll take, you know, head to foot. I want, I want to pardon you. And Jesus said, you've already been made clean. And a person that's been made clean doesn't need another bath, but their feet need washing. What Jesus was teaching was not service, but was forgiving each other ahead of time for things that, that people may do to us later on. You see, Peter had already been forgiven of his sins, correct? But what was Peter about to do, even though he'd already been forgiven, even though Jesus said, you're now rock man, you're that new creation. Flesh and blood didn't open your eyes. You're that new guy, Peter, now. What was Peter about to do? He was about to deny Jesus, wasn't he? And Jesus was washing Peter's feet before Peter even did 
what needed foot washing, if you will. You see what I'm saying? He didn't need another bath. He didn't need to get saved again. He's already been made clean. But he was going to do some things after salvation that needed forgiveness. And Jesus was forgiving him ahead of time. And Jesus was saying, look, you don't understand right now, but later you will. And if I, your master and your Lord, have forgiven you before you do it, you too should treat each other the same way. How many of us have said, well, I'll forgive them if they ask for forgiveness? You ever thought about that one? Does that match up with the heart of Jesus? Was he up on the cross saying, as soon as they ask for forgiveness, I'll give it to them? No, he was saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get into that forgiveness stuff when we get into verses 9 through 21 in a couple of weeks. Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at just verses 9 and 10. Because there's a couple of things in here we need to look at. And then after we begin to break down 9 and 10, I'm going to take you somewhere tonight. That is something that God has been talking to me about over the last six months to a year, but even more intensely just recently. So let's go back. Let's go back to Romans chapter 12 and look at verses 9 and 10. This is as far as we're going to get tonight. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's as far as we're going to get tonight. Who are we to love one another? I mean, so who are we to love? I just answered it for you. One another. But actually, keep in mind, we're to love everyone, are we not? Because that's who God loves. He loves the world. Even the people that hate him, he loves them. He loves everyone. But the Bible also says that we're not only supposed to love everyone, we're supposed to love the family of Christ even more. Go with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, look at verses 9 and 10. In Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10, it says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're to love everyone but especially the people in the church, the family of God, are the ones who are supposed to uh, be receiving our love or at least realize it even more. Now, let me just stop real quick. I'll show you some more scriptures that talk about this, but let me also say this to you. I don't know if you've experienced that in your families as well, but have you ever noticed that there's a tendency for us to treat our own families worse than we treat the people around us? Because subconsciously, we know they'll forgive us. Well, unfortunately, that happens in the church too much as well. Well, we go out of our way to be nice to the world, but we're mean to the brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said that that's not how the world's going to know you're my disciples. They're going to know you're my disciples by your love for another, for one another. Actually, AJ and I ran into a guy today and we got talking and he found out I was a preacher. And he goes, amen. And I said, you a believer? He said, yeah. He goes, let me tell you how I got saved. And he told me, he was, he goes, I was, and he listed, he said, I was a drunkard, I was a sexually immoral, I was a murderer. He even said that. He said, but in 1980, when I was in the Navy, I got saved. And he said, I got saved because of a couple of guys in my bunk who were Christians, and they shared Jesus with me, and I wanted nothing to do with it. I didn't believe any of that stuff. He said, but I watched them long enough to realize I want what they have. These guys are happy. 
They're at peace. This Navy life is hard. And they not only are happy, they love each other. And he goes, that is what made me become attracted to Christ. Watching their love for each other and the joy that they had. And that's how I got saved. Isn't that cool? This was just a brief encounter. AJ will tell you, it didn't even last five minutes. But we got his whole story of how he got saved. He lives in Memphis. Go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Look at verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We shouldn't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever doesn't love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God love, God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Actually, I've made a little note in my Bible. That's genuine love. Let love be what? Genuine. Do a lot of people know how to talk about love? But is their love genuine? And what does the Bible say will be the evidence that your love is genuine? Actions, actions, actually sharing, forgiving, serving, considering others more important than yourself, treating each other with honor, not just putting up with each other, but actually honoring each other. Go to 1 John 4, look at verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who doesn't love his brother whom he has not seen, or sorry, his brother who he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Who's the, who's the him that gave us the commandment? It was God, it was Jesus himself. Remember, what did he tell his disciples? He goes, I'm going away, and where I'm going you can't come, at least not yet. Oh, and by the way, the world's going to hate you and you're going to have tribulation. In me, you're going to have peace. But let me, let me give you a new command. I want you to love each other. Oh, God, we love each other. Oh, no, no, a new command. I've been telling you to love each other from the beginning, but it's a new commandment. I want you to love each other like I have loved you. Are you willing to lay down your life for them? Well, even that person, and you know who God just brought to your mind, even that person, especially if they're a brother and sister in Christ. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For indeed, that is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this, what? More and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You might even be loving people. You can't be satisfied with that. 
Let the Holy Spirit show you how he wants to increase your love for each other. Increase your love for each other. But go back to Romans 12 and look again at verse 9. Let love be genuine. And this is important right here. Don't miss the fact that Paul continued his thought. He says, let love be genuine. And then he says in the end, in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. But what did I skip over? It was in the middle of all that. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Listen closely. In our loving people, we must never approve of sin. We are to abhor what is evil and hold on to what is good. And we're to do this in our own lives as well. And we're going to talk to you about that in a little bit. But let me say this to you. The world's definition of love is you'll approve of my lifestyle. You'll approve of my choices. And that's not what the Bible says is love. We're to speak the truth in love to people, but we are to speak truth. Now, we have to let the Spirit of God show us how to do that. Because Jesus himself ate with sinners and hung out with sinners to the point that the Pharisees were thinking, this guy can't be as righteous as he thinks he is because he's eating with sinners and all this stuff. But Jesus never, ever, ever approved of people's sin. They knew he loved them. They wanted to be around him. Yet Zacchaeus, after having lunch with Jesus, came out of that encounter saying, I'm going to pay everybody back four times as much as I stole. He said to the woman in the, caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more. He said to the woman at the well, hey, uh, you have been married five times and the guy you're living with right now, you're not married to. And Jesus wasn't afraid to speak truth, but he let the people know that he loved them. The world says, if you love me, you'll say what I'm doing is okay. No, if I love you, I'll let you know that there's a judgment coming for sin. If I knew that it was coming and I didn't tell you because I love you, is that loving you? No, that's loving myself because I don't want you mad at me or I don't want you to possibly be upset that I think that what you're doing is wrong. And so I actually love myself when I don't tell you truth. Now be careful though. Too many of us love to tell the truth and we say, I'm just doing it in love. No, when you don't consider them, when you speak the truth and let the Spirit of God show you how to speak the truth, you aren't doing it in love. You're still loving yourself because you love pointing out right and wrong. There's a balance here that we need to understand as Christians where unbelievers know we love you. We care about you. But we also aren't afraid to say something is wrong when it's wrong. Sin is sin. There's a right and there's a wrong in the world that doesn't want any such thing. And we're to abhor evil and hold on to what is good. So when you're loving people, please don't be afraid to share the truth. Just ask God to show you when. Hey, I thank God for my wife, Becky, because I don't know if you know this or not. I'm not perfect. I know I try to present the fact that I am and fool you all, but I'm not. Let me say this to you. My wife has learned over the years, though, when to speak and when not to speak. She's learned how to let the Holy Spirit show her when to bring something to my attention and when not to. She's never approved of things that are wrong, but she's also learned how to let the Holy Spirit show her. And I try, hopefully, to do the same as well, even with my kids. Let me say this to you, though. Abhorring what is evil... And holding on to what is good and holding fast to what is good 
has to begin where before you can start sharing it with everybody around you? With yourself. Let me ask you a question. It's really easy to point out the two by four in your brother's eye or the speck in your brother's eye when the two by four is in yours. Let me ask you this question. Are there things in your life that you know are sin and you're holding on to them? It makes you feel better when you point out the sin in other people's lives because you don't feel so bad about yours, but abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good has to begin with us first. Then we can share it with others. That's why David, when he wrote Psalm 51, he said, Oh God, create in me a new heart. I'm a sinner. I was conceived in sin. It's in me. And wash me clean. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways. I'm not going to go and tell everybody about sin when I'm ignoring it in my own life. When Paul wrote or spoke to the Ephesian elders and he was saying goodbye to them, thinking he'd never see them again, he said this. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock of God, which is under your care. Did you catch that? When I deal with pastors, one of the big things I have to work with them on is we've got a big bunch of people under our care and a bunch of people that are called the flock that God has asked us to shepherd. But the Bible says that we're to shepherd ourselves first, then we can shepherd the flock. So many pastors are out there shepherding the flock, they ignore the sin in their own life. Go back to Romans 12. Look at verse 9 again, and then jump down to verse 21. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Jump down to verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can't overcome evil with good until you've overcome or allow the Spirit of God within you to overcome the evil within you. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5. Go back to verses 20 and 21. Again, you're going to start to see us jumping back and forth to a lot of these places where Paul had written similar things to other churches. In 1 Thessalonians 5, look at verses 20 and 21. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what? To what is good. By the way, there it is in verse 22. Abstain from every form of evil. Sound familiar? By the way, we've got to be careful in our lives that we are always processing what comes in and measuring it against the truth of God's word. That's how you'll know how to recognize truth from error. Does it match up with the word of God or does it, does it disagree with the word of God? We tried to teach our children that they're to be careful with the screen time and what was coming in and, and the influence. And we have to do the same thing in our lives as well. And, and I probably drive some people crazy sometimes because whatever I come in comes in, for the most part, I try to process it through the word of God. I'm going to check it against the word of God first and foremost, because I want to keep what's coming in. Well, I think the Bible says whatever's good, whatever's lovely, whatever think on those things, correct? And so how are we going to know what's good and right and lovely? Because the world's telling us a lot of things are good and OK. How are we going to know? Well, the scripture just told us, check it against the scripture. Look at it again at verses 20 and 21. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Look at verses 5 through 14. Colossians 3 verses 5 through 14. 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Stop. Is Paul writing to Christians or non-Christians? No, he's writing to Christians. The yes answer didn't work that time, Jeremy. Nice try. It doesn't work 100%. He's writing to Christians. He's just said in the verses prior to this, since you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. And so if he's talking to Christians and telling them to put away these things, is there a chance that Christians still struggle with some of these things? Of course. Anybody says they don't, they're lying to you. That's why Paul said, I know in my inner man I want to do right, but evil's right there in me, in my immortal body, in my flesh. Wretched man that I am. But he understood how to have victory in this war. Put them all away. Verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, I want you to put a little bookmark here. and This will be for your own study later on. But I'm going to show you tonight that until we start to grasp what we're going to wrap up with tonight, you can't do that. Until we really start to grasp the depth of what God's beginning to show me even more from his word, and I can't wait to share it with you. Until we start getting that, I'm going to tell you right now why you struggle, and I have struggled for years, with saying no to the sin and yes to the spirit. Something we all wrestle have, have wrestled with. We know we're supposed to say no to sin, correct? We know we're supposed to say yes to Jesus and walk in the Spirit and we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. We know that there's things in our lives that we want to get rid of. Why is it such a struggle? God's beginning to open my eyes a little bit more as to why. and It's been in the Word all along and we'll get there. So put a little bookmark here. Don't run off trying to do this just yet. There's a piece that's been missing. But we're not going to get there just yet. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Go to Philippians chapter 4. I quoted it earlier, but look closely at what it says. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We're not to just say no to sin and abhor what's evil. We're to pursue and to hold fast to what is good. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. Look at verses 4 through 8. This isn't just for weddings. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. Listen closely to what the scripture says. Love, genuine love. Remember, we're to let love be genuine. Genuine love is patient and kind. Genuine love does not envy or boast. 
Genuine love is not arrogant or rude. Genuine love does not insist on its own way. Genuine love is not irritable or resentful. Genuine love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Genuine love rejoices with the truth. Genuine love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Genuine love never ends. How you feeling now? Feeling like you got this? Starting to realize there's something wrong here. This is where Satan wants to come in and say, well, maybe you're not saved. No. It's not an issue whether or not we're saved. There's something that I can't wait to show you, but it's not time yet. Paul even adds a dimension to this love for each other at the end of verse 10. Go back to Romans 12. Look at verse 10 at the end. He's just said, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, and look, look at the rest of it. Outdo one another in showing honor. Isn't that crazy? Outdo one another in showing honor. Go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We'll start moving into what I have been waiting to show you tonight. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So, if some translations could be since there is encouragement in Christ, comfort from His love and participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, we're not going to keep reading. We're going to stop because I want to take some time to look at this. Before we go any further, has it surprised you a little bit at how much Jesus and Paul and Peter and others, the gospel writers and the, and the, the writers of the New Testament had to tell believers to love one another? and to be patient with one another, and forgive one another? Why do you think that that is a common theme through all these books? It's necessary, and it's hard, and it's going to be a problem. Not only that, if we're doing it well, Paul said we should what? Be happy and satisfied we're doing pretty good? No, do it more and more. This is actually against our nature. Oh, it's not against our new nature. It's against our flesh. Remember, that's why in Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, which is living for self, but we're to be transformed daily by what? The renewing of our mind as we offer our flesh and our bodies as a living sacrifice. There's something in these verses here that we just read that I want you to see that's going to take us where we need to go as we wrap up tonight. Don't get excited. We've still got a few minutes left here, but... Notice how Paul states that our considering others as more significant than ourselves will only come from a true encouragement from Christ and a true participation in His Spirit 
and a true comfort from God's love. I'm not saying that you don't have encouragement from Christ or you don't have participation in the spirit or you don't have comfort from his love. But I am saying to you that I think the scripture says that until we truly let the truth that we have take root in our hearts, we will never, ever really get to the level of what the scripture is teaching. Let me explain what I mean. I'm learning that we cannot fully abhor evil and hold on to the good and fully love each other until we come to a deeper knowledge of the good one. I'm going to use an illustration and then I'm going to show you from Scripture what I'm talking about. Does the Bible say that sin is pleasurable? Yes, it does. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, go there real quick. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Look at verses 24 and 25. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin is pleasurable. If it wasn't, you wouldn't have a problem with it. But it is pleasurable for a season. And for those of us who are in Christ, when we do sin, we hate it afterwards. The conviction is awful. We grieve the spirit and he's, we sense his grief, grief and we don't like it. But at the time, you wouldn't be tempted with it if it wasn't pleasurable. So let me ask you a question. And I want to show of hands here. This will help you with honesty. How many of you... By a show of hands tonight would agree, you know sin is pleasurable. All right, now put your hands down. The Bible says we're to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. How many of you, and I don't want you to raise your hands here now. This is between you and the Lord. How many of you really know the love of God to the point that the love of God is so much greater than the pleasure of sin you actually want to do that more. But right now, if you're honest, some of you know that God's love is supposed to be better. You know that fellowship with him is supposed to be of greater worth. We read that in the Bible. I would rather be spending time with the Lord than anything else. Oh, Lord, my time with you is so wonderful. We know that. We grew up singing, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs after you. And if we're honest, many of us are in church saying, I wish that was really the case. But it's not. It's not that we're not saved. It's that we really don't understand the beauty of the good one. We know the pleasures of sin. We don't really know the pleasures of Jesus. See, when I was a kid, if you gave me a corn dog, I thought you were the greatest person in the world. I mean, corn dogs were it. But then one day, I had a steak. And if you give me a choice now between a corn dog and a steak, guess what I'm going to pick? I'm going to pick a steak. Why? Because I've tasted both. And one is far superior to the other. I don't believe we Christians have ever really taken the time to allow the Spirit of God who is already within us to show us 
the beauty of Jesus to the point that we no longer will have as strong a pull towards sin. Now the rest, the temptation is going to be there, but we'll know something is far greater. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, then you can consider others. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you truly understand the love of God for you, all the other stuff that is rubbing you wrong about other people will fall by the wayside because of the beauty of Jesus. Now, let me show you something that you might not have ever seen. Go to 1 Timothy 3. You say, I've read 1 Timothy 3. No, no, just, just stick with me here. Go to 1 Timothy 3. Look at verses 14 through 16. In 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So in these verses, Paul says to Timothy, I'm hoping to come see you, but I'm writing you this letter just in case that if I'm delayed, you would know how people ought to conduct themselves in the family of God, in the church. And let me just tell you, Timothy, the mystery of godliness is great. And then he tells us what the mystery of godliness is. What's the mystery of godliness? It's right there. It's Jesus. Do you see it? The mystery of godliness is Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In other words, the mystery of godliness is not learning how to say no to sin and yes to the spirit. The mystery of godliness is learning how to get to know Jesus. He is the mystery of godliness. In him, we have already received everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him so that we may partake of the divine nature that is already ours. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But what? In me, you will have peace. Folks, listen to me. If you think that you will get up and I'm going to say no to sin and I'm going to say yes to Jesus and you're focusing on this, you've totally missed it. When you say yes to Jesus and you focus on Jesus and you start to experience what you already have and who he is, all of a sudden the victory over sin will start to become easier because you will have tasted that the Lord is good. I'm reading a book right now that I have to read really slowly because it was written by Oswald Chambers and it's so deep and so profound. I I have trouble reading it, okay? I'm ignorant, all right? But it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In other words, when I start to fall in love with Jesus, he pushes the other stuff out of, the, out of my life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Go to Ephesians chapter 1. This is why Paul prayed what he prayed. 
in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 13 because you have to understand who he's talking to. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and following. We're going to go all the way to verse 23. Ephesians 1 verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Who is he writing to, believers or unbelievers? Believers. For this reason, now that you've been saved and sealed, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. By the way, if you're, not, if you're kind of curious about what kind of power, it's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. So Paul says, and we're not done here in Ephesians. He said, now that I've heard of your faith and your love toward each other, my prayer is that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened, that you'd come to know him more, the hope to which he's called you, the glorious inheritance that you have in the saints and the mighty power that's available toward us who believe. By the way, don't miss that. A big part of us coming to understand the love of God will only happen as we're in community with each other. You're going to see that as we wrap up tonight. It's the hope to which he's called us. The glorious inheritance we have in what? In the church, in the saints. A big part of him demonstrating his love for us will happen as the body ministers to the body. That's how he's designed it. We'll go to that more later on. And the mighty power that's available for us who believe. Jump over to chapter 3. Look at verses 14 through 21. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. All right. Believers or unbelievers? Believers, very clear, he's talking to believers. They have the Spirit already in them. My prayer is that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your ear, being that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Not just be there, but take, take up residence. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, oh, there it is again, with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in the Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Don't miss this. When will we be filled with all the fullness of God? When we what? When we really start to understand the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of the love of Jesus. Do you see it? Now, have we already been given all the fullness because of Christ's us? Yes. Are we filled with it? 
We have it, but the word filling means under control of it. In other words, it's, we're under its control. That's why the Bible says, be being filled with the Spirit. You have all of Jesus you ever need. You don't need a special anointing. You have the anointing. He's in you. He's sealed you. You don't need more of Jesus. You got him. The question is, does he have more of you? Is he allowed to take control? And that's going to be a daily process for each of us. And by the way, don't be comparing your journey in this, this, this finding out more of Jesus than others, because they're all of us going to be doing this at different walks and different levels. Paul himself said, I want to know Christ, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And if anyone, you know, doesn't think this way, the Lord will show you, but at least hold on to what you have. In other words, I, he says, I want to know Christ more. And if any of you are mature, you'll have the same attitude. Listen, if you're wanting to know Jesus more each day, you're mature. You could be at it for a year. You could be at it for 50 years. But if you're wanting to know him more, you're a mature believer. It's a hunger for more of Jesus. What's the mystery of godliness? Jesus, Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's not seven steps to saying no to sin. It's not 21 days and you'll develop a habit. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. We know what sin's like. And we're still tempted by it. But even though we're saved, do we really know the love of Christ for us? By the way, was Peter saved when Jesus washed Peter's feet? Yes. But Jesus was showing him even more the depth of his love for him. I not only love you, I love you even though you're going to act like you never met me before. I love you that much. Jesus meets back up with him and says, Peter, do you love me? He says, I do. Jesus said, let's get going from here. Let's keep going. And over time, what Jesus, what Peter was doing, what Jesus was doing to all of them, and especially to Peter by washing his feet, started to sink into Peter. Oh, by the way, do you know what Peter wrote at the end of his last letter? Do you all know what he said? He said, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what he wrote at the beginning of that letter in 2 Peter chapter 1? He said, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. So we may partake of the divine promises and escape the, 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 the troubles of sin that we have. And then he says, because of your faith, I'm going to ask you to add to your faith goodness and knowledge and self-control and love. Anybody didn't realize it doesn't have these qualities and they're increasing. They're nearsighted and blind and they've forgotten. They've been forgiven from their past sins. So Peter says, you've already got all the Jesus you're ever going to get and all you need. Now I'm going to ask you to grow in him. And he ends his letter with saying, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, be careful. As you begin this journey, God's going to be showing you things, and you're going to want to become the preacher. The wrong kind. The kind that say, you ought to be doing this, because that's what I'm doing. You see what I'm saying? Oh, I just spent an hour with the Lord. You need to be doing that. Oh, be careful. We each are walking with Jesus individually, and he's got a plan for each of our lives. Let him, all I want to encourage you is hunger more and more for him. Oh, but Jim, what if I don't? Ah, I got good news for you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5 says, May the Lord himself direct your hearts 
to the love of God and the perseverance of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 3.5, may God direct your hearts to the love of God and the perseverance of Christ. You want to have a heart for him? Ask him. Ask him. Say, Lord, I want that. And he knows your heart. And if you ask and believe, and you ask anything according to his will, guess what? He hears you. And if he hears you, you got it. And he's going to do it. He will begin to do a work in you. By the way, go to Ephesians 4. We just looked at chapter 1 and chapter 3. Look at verse 4, chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Don't miss this. And he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Not the pastors doing the work of the ministry, but the saints doing the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Sounds like it's a process. And a knowledge of the Son of God. Did you catch that? That's a process. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves. And carried about by every wind of doctrine. By cunning, human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Remember, he's been given this power and everything has all been given to the church. Who is he's the head of? It's his body. And we, we should grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see how a part of getting to knowledge of the fullness of Christ is also going to be tied to fellowship with each other, ministering to one another, spending time with each other and loving each other. By the way, I heard today that some people in this Bible study have been doing that. And I just want to tell you, it made my heart leap. There are some people that used to come to our Bible study, but they haven't been able to recently. And one lady broke her wrists. And there have been people in here that have been going and taking care of her, ministering to her. And I say, that makes the Lord happy. And that individual is probably getting a taste of the love of God through the body, taking care of her. Folks, don't think, oh, so-and-so has got a need. Call the preacher. No. We preachers are supposed to be equipping you through the ministry of the word to grow up into Jesus and to find out what your gifts are and to minister to the body so that we can all continue to grow in our knowledge of him and we can help each other grow in our knowledge of him. And the body will build itself up in love as each part does its work. By the way, does that not sound like Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? Offer your body living sacrifice, verses 3 through 8. Don't think yourself more highly, but find out what your role is and go ahead and do it. And now, let me just say this to you. It's going to be a lifelong journey for you. It's not going to all of a sudden happen tomorrow and the rest is all done. But you are going to be learning how to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. But the answer is pursuing Jesus more. Not wrestling between, do I choose here or do I choose that? Pursue righteousness. Flee unrighteousness. Pursue righteousness. Abhor evil. Hold fast to what? To what is good. We'll close tonight with Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verses 18, uh, 8 through 11. Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11.
I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. By the way, in the midst of this, we see a prophecy about Jesus not rotting in the tomb, don't we? But it's for us as well, is it not? I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One, Jesus, see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The question is, do we know this? I meant, do we not know this on paper? Do we know this in our hearts? That's where peace and joy come from. Oh, there was a period where Peter walked on the water, did he not? But what happened? How come he sank? Look closely. The Bible says he started to look at the wind and the waves. That's going to happen to us, folks. We're in this world still, are we not? We still got our flesh, and it's still got sin in it. And things are going to happen, and when you start to feel that worry, that anxiety, that fear, that dread, that all that, that means we've taken our eyes off of Jesus. But that's okay. He's already forgiven us before we do. He loves us that much. But my prayer is that I and you and you and me together, we will grow up into him who is the head. And as we do, loving each other in the process, we will begin to taste and see that the Lord is good and what the world offers will look like a corn dog in comparison to a steak. I love you. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for coming.